Mark chapter 13. Lord, as we look into your word now, we ask that you would bless this time beautifully and wonderfully. God, I would ask that you would anoint me to teach your word. I can't do it in and of myself, Lord. It would be horrible. So I'm asking for your empowering that you would author my thoughts and my words. And then I ask that the syllables that leave my lips, that you would anoint them as life-transforming agents in the hearts of men and women here to your glory, that your Holy Spirit would be working through your holy word to bring change to our lives and to our community, to this coastline, to this world, God. So as we talk about Bible prophecy, what your word says is going to happen, as we look back in history, and see that what your word said would happen, did happen. Ask that you would build our faith, you would build our boldness, and you would build our obedience to your word, that our walk with you would be uncompromised, single-hearted. Ask that you would do this in our midst today, in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, you'll remember, we started a series on Bible prophecy. Mark chapter 13 is one of the richest uh, chapters on Bible prophecy in the New Testament. And we're going to take about eight to ten weeks to study it. Last week I said eight weeks. And then as I studied more this week, I thought, well, it might be ten. We'll see how it is next week. But eight to ten weeks or so to study Mark chapter 13. If you weren't here last week, you want to get the CD, because in that CD we laid a lot of groundwork. We defined some terms. What is Bible prophecy? What are the end times? It's not the end of time. It's the end of a time in which we live. What does that mean? Uh, What is the importance of Bible prophecy? And we got kind of an introduction and an overview. So if Bible prophecy is sort of new to you or you're unsure about end time events or you have weird connotations in your mind, as many of us do when we think about Bible prophecy, I want you to get the CD from last week. If you don't have any money, just tell them and they'll gladly give it to you. Another resource available to you, which is brand new here at Reality, is with regards to the website. On the website, as always, which is JesusIsReality.com, you can go there and either listen to streaming audio of the messages or download them. Um, But now, a wonderful woman in our congregation is taking the Sunday messages and she's transcribing them and putting them in outline form. Every word of the message is given on Sunday, and we're posting those up on the website. Uh, So if you sometimes say, Britt goes too fast, I can't keep up with it, or there were so many scripture references, or I can't remember that, now you can go and listen again and see the notes. What an amazing tool to go a little deeper, to retain a little more. And then at the end of the notes are some study questions for you to think about or for you to interact with others through a small group. Um, So we want you to be aware of that. And if you weren't here last week, or last week was kind of a challenge to you, Be aware of those things and get into them. Last week, we read the first four verses. We saw that in verse 4, the disciples came to Jesus on the Mount of Olives. That's why this chapter is sometimes called the Olivet Discourse. And they asked him some specific questions. It says in verse 4, Tell us, speaking to Jesus, the disciples, When will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? I mentioned last week that Matthew 24 is the parallel account to Mark chapter 13. Matthew 24 gives us a little more detail than Mark does. And in Matthew chapter 24, we see that the question was a little, uh, a little, there's a little more to it than that. They said, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So they wanted to know, when will these things be? 
referring to verse 2 where Jesus told them the temple would soon be destroyed. When is that going to take place? When will the end of the age be? What will it look like? What signs should we look for? And how will we know that your second coming is near? Huge questions, amazing questions, all of them covered in Mark chapter 13 over the next several weeks. But today we're going to narrow in on verses 1 and 2 with regards to the temple. This message is called the Jerusalem temple in prophecy. They were leaving the temple in verse 1. It says, and as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They were standing at that time in the second temple. I'll explain that pretty soon. And the second temple was an amazing building. It was huge. It was beautiful. It was ornate. It was elaborate. It was gorgeous. It was awe-inspiring. And one of the disciples is just pointing this out to the Lord, just conversating. Look at this building. And Jesus, I imagine catching him off guard, says to him in verse 2, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Lord, what did I say? I just said, look how nice it is. And Jesus says, the whole thing's going to be torn to the ground. What does that mean? Why did he say it? What does it mean? And why is it important? I want you to keep in mind as we answer those questions, the spiritual condition of Israel in the first century. From the words of Jesus, we find that Israel had grown spiritually cold. That they praised the Lord with their lips, but their heart was far from God. That they had an outward appearance and an outward display of religion and religiosity. They had the big buildings and they had the robes and they had the gold and they had all these things that looked impressive, but inside there was no real relationship with God. That was why Jesus cursed the fig tree in the previous chapters. Do you remember that? Because the fig tree, though, it had lots of leaves. It was bearing no fruit. And Jesus cursed it as a picture of the condition Israel was in. That they were putting on a good religious show, a great outer um, you know, appearance with leaves, so to speak, of the fig tree and the picture of the temple. But there was no inward reality, no real connection with God, which is what God longs for with each one of us. And so with that in mind... That is the context which gives us a clue as to why Jesus said this temple will be destroyed. Now keep in mind that throughout Bible history, there have been two temples in Jerusalem. And there is going to be, according to the Bible, a third temple. Bible is explicit about that, absolutely clear. There has been two, historically speaking, the Bible said there would be, and there is going to be a third In the Bible, the temple is usually referred to as the house of the Lord or the house of God. The house of the Lord, Beit Adonai in Hebrew, or the house of God, Beit Elohim. That is the usual term given to the temple because that really denotes the purpose for the temple. The temple was to be a place where God dwelled to be among his people. It was a place where God's people were to be able to come and meet with God, to sacrifice to the Lord as the law required, and to worship their God. It was the center of Jewish worship and religious life. When we talk about the temple throughout our study, we are only speaking of the temples which have stood in Jerusalem. We're not talking about any other temples around the world, so forget about any of those. We're only talking about the temple that has stood in Jerusalem on a mount called Moriah. 
As I said, there have been two temples historically, and the one in our text that Jesus says was soon to be destroyed is the second temple. The first temple was built by Solomon. Now, the temple had to be built in a specific area, on Mount Moriah. If you go to Jerusalem, Jerusalem is basically a city on a hill. And part of that hill is Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is where Abraham was told to go and sacrifice Isaac. But you'll remember that the Lord intervened and said, okay, now I know that your heart is totally for me, Abraham. It was a test. Don't sacrifice Isaac. The Lord will provide for himself a lamb. On Mount Moriah, God said that. Now, where Jesus was crucified a couple thousand years later was on a hill called Golgotha, which is a geographical extension of Mount Moriah, where God said he would provide for himself the lamb. He did that through Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, in the exact location, Mount Moriah, there in Jerusalem. And when God told Israel that he would bring them out of Egypt into the promised land, he said that he would bring them to Mount Moriah. Along the way, they stopped at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where Moses left the children of Israel, went up on the mountain to be with the Lord. And there he received the law or the commandments, mitzvah in Hebrew, from God, the Ten Commandments. And he also received the pattern for the tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle. It was the meeting place where God would manifest his presence and God's people would be encamped about it and there they would worship the Lord. It was the predecessor, the precursor to the actual temple that would be built in Jerusalem. This one was mobile as they went through the land and they had the tabernacles, the center of worship for about 400 years. And then there came a time where God said, now is the time to build the actual temple on Mount Moriah. And David said, I'll do it. And you'll remember the story. The Lord said, David, you can't do it. You've been a wonderful king, but you're a man of war and there's a lot of blood on your hands. And the temple is a picture of peace. Peace brought to the world only by the Messiah because the temple is the very presence of God on earth, historically speaking, and in the future it will be. And so David, being a man of war, couldn't build the house of peace, but he told David, your son Solomon will build it. And so Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, 960 years before Christ. I think we have a picture of it. That's, they didn't have cameras then. It's not like a picture picture, but an artist's rendering of Solomon's temple. There you see in the lower right-hand corner the altar where the sacrifices were made and burned. And if you were to go up to that next platform and through that door, you would enter into the holy place where the, um, the uh, menorah was, the light there, and there was the table of showbread. And then you'd go beyond there into the holy of holies and there was the altar of incense and there was the ark of God. We're told that when this temple was dedicated to the Lord, that the presence of the Lord descended upon it. It's called the Shekinah glory of God. God's presence dwelling among man over the ark between the wings of the cherubim in Solomon's temple. His presence was so radical when it descended, we're told in the Old Testament, that the people that were supposed to serve in the temple couldn't even stand in the midst of the presence of God. It was so powerful. It was so radical. So Solomon built that temple, 960 BC. And upon completion, God gave to Israel a conditional prophecy. You see, some prophecies in the Bible are conditional. Others are unconditional. Unconditional ones are, God is saying, I'm gonna do this no matter what else happens. Conditional are God's, is God saying, I will do this if you do thus and so. 
Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 comes to mind. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear and I will heal their land. It was an if-then statement. If they respond in obedience and pray, then I will heal their land. So God gives the people of Israel in the Bible some if-then prophecies. And he gives them at the completion of the temple a very significant one, significant to this day, in 1 Kings chapter 9. Please turn there. 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9 comes just before 2 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 9. <laughs> I'm so bad. Starting in verse 1. Now it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, Beit Adonai in Hebrew, and the king's house, he built himself a house, and all that Solomon desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication which you have made before me. And I have consecrated this house which you have built. To consecrate means to set apart for a holy use. To remove it from from profane purposes and set it apart for a holy use. To sanctify, to consecrate. God says concerning the first temple, I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Very prophetically significant statement there. God says concerning Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, in Israel, that his name is attached to that location forever. That his heart is attached to that location forever. That's interesting for us today because much of the conflict in the Middle East centers upon the Temple Mount. On a broad spectrum, it's got to do with Israel. More specifically, Jerusalem. More specifically, Eastern Jerusalem, which is often the deal breaker when someone tries to broker peace between the Palestinians and Israel. And then more specifically, the Temple Mount. That is the center or at the heart of the conflict in the Middle East. You'll see that unfold today. It's no question as to who owns the Temple Mount. God says, it's mine forever. Verse 4. And as for you, Solomon, if you walk before me as your father did, in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. That is called the Davidic covenant, or the covenant made with the household of David between David's household and God. And God here is saying that the throne of David would be established forever. When Jesus returns a second time and he establishes a millennial kingdom in Jerusalem, he will establish his throne there and he sits upon the throne of David. You remember that when Jesus was talking to the religious leaders sometime earlier, he told them that the Messiah would be the son or the descendant of David. And so the fulfillment of that promise that someone would always sit upon the throne of David is going to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom when Jesus returns and he rules and reigns there from Jerusalem. Now I want you to give your attention 
to verses 6 and 7. But if you or your son shall indeed turn away from following me and shall not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then, you see the if-then statement, the beginning of verse 6, if you disobey, verse 7, then, now the consequences, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And the house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast it out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to the land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and adopted other gods, and worshiped them, and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought this adversity upon them. You see the conditional prophecy there, the conditional promise. If you refuse to obey me, Israel, there's going to be consequences. I will remove you from the wonderful land that I brought you to, and I will remove from your presence my house where my presence dwells. You need to understand that our actions have consequences before God. Always. Jesus Christ died upon the cross that the eternal consequences of our sin might be removed. He paid the price for those, so the eternal consequences removed. We're not going to go to hell, we're going to go to heaven. But in the temporal, in the here and now, our bad decisions always have consequences. It was true for Israel then, it's true for us now. And I get so sad when I hear Christians say, well, I can just do whatever I want because the Lord forgives me. First of all, that's a That's a blasphemous attitude. Second of all, yeah, the Lord forgives you in eternity, but he will see to it that you reap what you sow in this lifetime. He's designed it that way. For example, if you were to go out this afternoon and drink a 24-pack of beer, you would wake up tomorrow with a horrible hangover. Why is that? Because a hangover is your brain being dehydrated, swelling within your skull, and trying to come out your ears. It's a design by God to teach you a lesson. There are consequences to bad decisions. God designs it into this lifetime. He sees to it. Sometimes, In his extreme grace, God covers the consequences of here and now. But the basic rule is, you shall reap what you sow, according to the book of Corinthians. And so Israel sowed disobedience. And so they reap the consequences of this if-then prophecy. And though the temple was meant by God to be established forever in Israel, it was dependent upon the actions of the nation. And that means that throughout history, the temple could be removed or returned as often as Israel was fickle or faithful to the commandments of the Lord. And sad to say, shortly after this temple was completed, Israel began a spiritual decline. In fact, just two chapters later in the book of 1 Kings, we see them begin to spiritually decline. They fall into idolatry, that is going after other gods. They fall into apostasy, that is falling away from the word of God, and into immorality, disobeying what God has to say. And so it began this spiritual backslide under Solomon, and it climaxed under the king called Manasseh in 2 Kings chapter 21. 
And so then God, because they chose to disobey, fulfills his promise, his word, as he always will. And 374 years later, the temple was destroyed. It was destroyed under King Nebuchadnezzar, who at that time was kind of the ruling world power, the Babylonian Empire. God had warned Israel from Deuteronomy chapter 28 all the way up until the year of Nebuchadnezzar's coming that if you disobey, I will bring an army from the north. They will destroy you. You will be removed from the land and you will go into exile. And so we read in 2 Kings chapter 25 verses 8 and 9. Now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, that happens to be August 14. 586 B.C. on our calendar. August 14, 586 B.C., Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord. Just as the Lord told them. You've got to read the Old Testament and see how desperately God tried to warn them. How many times God gave them chances and said, please turn, please repent. But when they don't, God used another nation, a pagan nation, a wicked nation to judge Israel. It's interesting that throughout history, God demonstrates his sovereignty and that he uses nation to judge nation. When Israel was disobedient, he would use a nation to come against them as a judgment upon Israel. And other times, he would use Israel to judge other nations by conquering them. God has always used the nations that way. It's amazing. It's something wonderful to look at in the Bible, something kind of terrifying. But Israel was now judged, and they were taken away into Babylon. And there they were in captivity for 70 years. It's called the Babylonian captivity. That's the context for the book of Daniel and a lot of other books in the Bible, but there they are in Babylon for 70 years. Now, do you remember uh, last week? Last week, I was just speaking about general Bible prophecy, and I shared a specific example about someone named Cyrus. In Isaiah chapter 41, in Isaiah chapter 44, and in Isaiah chapter 45, God names someone uh, or calls someone uh, uh, Cyrus. And he says about Cyrus that he would raise him up, He says that he would be a king and that he would be a servant to God's purposes. He speaks specifically about his military conquests and that he would be one who would allow the Jews to return to the land. He gave those prophecies about Cyrus 150 years before he was born. Cyrus was born 150 years after God called him by name. He became the king of Persia. The Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire, and Cyrus, now in power, said to the Jews, you guys can return. And so having been exiled for 70 years, they're now allowed to return to Israel. We read about it in the book of uh, Ezra, that about 50,000 Jews chose to return to Israel under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Here's what's heartbreaking about that. There were way more Jews than that in Babylon. They were all allowed to go home. They were all set free, but a small percentage of them chose to go free, chose to actually walk in that freedom. That seems to me so sad that they became so comfortable in captivity that when freedom was given to them, they chose not to walk in it. And so it is, sadly, with many Christians today. They've been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. They've been forgiven. The power of sin in their lives is broken. The power of the devil in their lives is broken. There's newness of life and freedom, but so many Christians choose to remain in captivity. They remain to be bound up. They choose to remain enslaved to sin. 
when the Lord has set you free. Don't do that. That's so wrong. Israel did it. A small percentage returned, and under the leadership of Zerubbabel, they begin to build now a second temple. You can read the story of that in the book of Ezra, chapters 1 through 6. That's where we get that famous passage, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He spoke to that to Zerubbabel as it was difficult to build the second temple. The second temple was completed in 515 B.C., 515 years before Christ, Zerubbabel and some of the Jews there completed the building of this second temple. Now, we're told in the Old Testament that there were some Jews amongst Zerubbabel and the guys who were present during the first temple period. Old men now, old sages of Israel. And they remember the temple from 70 years ago. And we are told that when that temple, the second one was completed, that they tore their clothes and they wept and they mourned because it was just paled in comparison to the glory of Solomon's temple. And we are told that the Shekinah glory did not descend upon this temple. That God's presence inhabited the first temple, but the second temple, we don't see that taking place. And so... That temple was the situation in Israel for about 500 years. And 500 years later, after that temple existed, it was in need of some refurbishing, you can imagine. Your house is probably 20 or 30 years old. It looks pretty shabby. The house of the Lord is 500 years old. It was in need of some refurbishing. Now we're approaching the birth of Christ. And Rome had installed over the land of Judea in Israel a king. His name was Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was sometimes sympathetic toward the Jews and wanted to please the Jews. And so he refurbished the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. He doubled its height. He made it bigger. He allowed them to plate the inside with gold. He made it glorious and beautiful, sometimes called the Herodian Temple. When you hear the name Herod the Great, he was great because of his building exploits. When we go to Israel this December, our tour guide is going to continually be saying, Herod the Great built that canal. Herod the Great built this city. Herod the Great built that. He was absolutely amazing at building things. And he refurbished the temple, and it was finished in 6 B.C., Six years before the birth of Christ. I have a picture of the second temple. There it is, uh, a little blurry. But you can see it's bigger than Solomon's temple. It's taller and it's a little more glorious. That is the temple that was standing at the time of Jesus. That's where he would have been, where he would have taught, where he would have walked, where he would have rebuked. Now, the second temple was subject to the same stipulations as the first temple. God said about the first temple, if you disobey me, I'll remove you from the land and I'll destroy the temple. Same thing with the second one. Same exact thing. And sadly, Israel once again began to fall away from the Lord. And we know from what Jesus had to say that the spiritual condition during the time of Jesus in the first century of Israel was bad. That in their hearts they had fallen away from God that they were disobedient to the Lord. And that is why in our text of Mark chapter 13, verse two, Jesus said, do you see these wonderful buildings? I'm telling you, not one stone will be left upon another. He pronounced further judgment a week earlier. A week earlier in Luke chapter 19, it was the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You remember that? We studied it. It's called Palm Sunday. And we, he stood over Jerusalem and he wept that day, if you remember. And then he pronounced his judgment, Luke 19, 41 through 46. It says, And when Jesus approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If 
You had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you, speaking to the Romans, and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written in my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. At the triumphal entry, he wept over Jerusalem because Israel was not spiritually alert. They weren't obeying God's word. They weren't heeding God's word. They weren't studying God's word. Had they been, they would have recognized the day of this visitation. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem was prophesied in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 25 through 27, to the day. It was prophesied 173,880 days before it took place. Israel could have known the coming of the Messiah. They could have known that he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, but they missed it. And so once again, God pronounces judgment upon them and says the temple will be destroyed. In Luke chapter 21, which is a parallel to Mark 13, in verse 24, he says, And they will fall by the edge of the sword, speaking of the Jews at that time, and will be led captive into all the nations. That's called the diaspora. That is, the Jews dispersed across the world out of their homeland. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Remember last week we talked about different times and ages in the Bible and we talked about the end time scenario has to do with the end of the church age, sometimes called the age of grace, sometimes called the time of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles is that period which is now coming to a close. And Jesus said, Israel, you're going to be removed from the land once again. The temple's going to be destroyed once again. And there will be a Gentile or non-Jewish presence reigning in Jerusalem until the end of the church age, until the second coming, or more specifically, the rapture of the church. And that's what we see happening today. And so in 70 AD, that prophecy that Jesus gave that the temple will be destroyed was fulfilled. It was 586 years after the second temple was first completed. And in 70 AD, the 10th Roman legion under the leadership of Titus Vespasian came into Jerusalem and it says explicitly in history that they burnt the house of the Lord. Now, Jesus didn't say that they would burn it. He said that not one stone would be left upon another in Mark chapter 13. Remember that? Not one stone would be left upon one another. If you go to Israel with us this December, you'll wonder how anybody burnt everything, anything at all. Everything is made of stone. But there were some things on the interior of the temple that would burn. We know that the Romans came, they burned Jerusalem, and they burned the temple. And the temple on the inside was covered in gold. There was gold articles and there was gold all through the inside of it. Herod had allowed for this financially. And when they burnt it, that gold had melted and had gone between the stones that were stacked upon one another to make the structure of the temple. And so the Romans, wanting the gold, dismantled it stone by stone, knocking everyone off to get at the gold, thereby perfectly fulfilling what Jesus said in Mark 13 too, not one stone shall be left upon one another. It's tragic, but the Bible's wonderful in its prophecies. If only Israel had heeded. 
And for the next 568 years, bringing us up to current time in a minute here, for the next 568 years, Israel tried at times to rebuild the temple and was never successful. In the year 638, Jerusalem was conquered by Islam, and it remained under Islamic control for many years. In AD 61, there was a Muslim shrine or memorial known as the Dome of the Rock built where the temple once stood. We have a picture of it. There it is. You guys recognize that? That's called the Dome of the Rock. It's standing on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, on Mount Moriah, where historically the two temples did stand. Now, please understand, that is not a Jewish structure. That is not the Jewish temple. There is no Jewish temple standing in Jerusalem today. That is Islamic. It was built by the Muslims in 691. And it's not only anti-Jewish in the fact that it was built on the Temple Mount to prevent Jews from rebuilding their temple, but it is anti-Christian as well. If you go to Israel with us this December, we will go on the Temple Mount. We will stand at the very base of the dome of that rock. We will look up and we will see that under that gold dome, there's Arabic writing all around the structure. And our tour guide will interpret that for us and we'll see that part of that Arabic writing says, God is not begotten, nor does he have a son. Who is that an attack against? Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, God in the flesh. Please don't think that that is good or Jewish or Christian. It's Islamic and it's anti-Jewish and it's anti-Christian. Please also don't mistake it for a mosque. It is not a mosque, though some years later in 715, there was a mosque built on the southern end of the Temple Mount, just adjacent to the Dome of the Rock. It is called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's a smaller black dome. We have an aerial photo of um, the Temple Mount. There is a Temple Mount. On the bottom of the screen, you see that road running there? That road on the bottom of the screen is almost at the bottom of the Kidron Valley. So right at the bottom of the screen is the Kidron Valley, and then it goes up from there to the Mount of Olives. So we're looking at an aerial picture here from the east to the Temple Mount. You see in that wall surrounding the Temple Mount on the right, you see sort of a blocky part. It's a gate. That is the eastern gate or the glorious gate. That is the location of the gate that Jesus went through on the triumphal entry and the gate area where he will go through at his second coming. That whole mount is the temple mount where both those temples once stood. You see the dome of the rock in the middle. And to your left on the southern end of the temple, that black structure with a little black dome is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The Al-Aqsa Mosque. Now, Islam claims this temple mount to be their third holiest site. Third, their first is Mecca, the second is Medina, and the third they claim to be the Temple Mount. The source of conflict is that Israel, Judaism, claims it to be their holiest site, Islam's third holiest site, and Israel's holiest site. They don't have another one beside this. The Temple Mount is everything to them, and that's much of the conflict today. Moving forward in history a little bit more, in 1948, Israel becomes a nation in a day. God said in Isaiah 66, can I birth a nation in a day? It's never been done. May 14th, midnight, 1948, Israel became a nation after uh, 1,878 years of not being a nation. 1,878 years. 
of not being a nation, they became a nation again. This is unprecedented. This has never happened in history that a people group has ceased to be a nation, dispersed across the face of the world, and yet somehow maintained a national identity and was brought back into a land 1,878 years later. It is a miracle of God on all accounts. There's no precedent for it whatsoever. It's Bible prophecy fulfilled in our midst. So 1948, they become a nation again. They're attacked by about five um, uh, Arab nations at that time. They defeat all of them. 1967, they're attacked by about five more Arab nations. And what ensues is the Six-Day War. In the Six-Day War, the goal of those Arab nations was to annihilate Israel and wipe them off the face of the earth and push them into the Mediterranean. Miraculously, outnumbered I'm not going to give you the number because I can't remember exactly. Outnumbered horrendously, Israel won that battle in six days against all odds, and they captured eastern Jerusalem. Prior to that, though they were a nation, Jerusalem was still controlled by the Jordanians, and it was in Palestinian control through the Jordanians. They captured it from Jordan in that six-day war in 1967, and for the first time now in over... 1,800 years, they had control of the Temple Mount. The Jews were freaking out. They hadn't had it for that time. There's a wonderful picture here of paratroopers at the Western Wall in 1967. For the first time in millennium, Jews freely approaching the holiest site in the world for them. There's other pictures of paratroopers, soldiers with huge guns, weeping at the Western Wall because they understood that that moment was a fulfillment of God's prophecy concerning their people. It's unbelievable. Unfortunately, in my opinion, Israel made a political decision that same year during that victory. In 1967, Though they conquered East Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, they chose to maintain sovereignty, but they delivered control of the Temple Mount to the Islamic Waqf, W-A-Q-F, you try to pronounce it, or Islamic Trust. Being that it was a third holiest site, being that they would never let it go, they surrendered authority or control of just the Temple Mount specifically to Islamic authorities, but Israel to this day maintains sovereignty over it. Now, no Jew is allowed to go on to the Temple Mount. We saw that aerial photograph. No Jew is allowed to go up there and pray. In fact, many Jews are forbidden from going up there whatsoever. Um, earlier this year in January, I think it was about January 2nd, uh, the newly revived Sanhedrin, which I'll speak about in a few minutes, tried to go up onto the Temple Mount because part of their agenda is to build a third temple. I'll give you the details of that. They tried to go up on the Temple Mount and they were stopped. And so for 33 years, that was the situation. Israel is a sovereign nation. They have sovereignty over Jerusalem and they have sovereignty of the Temple Mount, but they've given control to the Islamic authorities. For 33 years, that's the situation until September of 2000. And an event takes place that many of us might remember. Ariel Sharon. Ariel Sharon was not yet the prime minister of Israel. Ariel Sharon was at that time a member of the Knesset. The Knesset is a legislative party in Israel. As a member of the Knesset, he decided to lead a delegation of Jews onto the Temple Mount to pray. 
Remember, Jews are forbidden to do this. And as an act in a declaration of Israel's sovereignty and their right to the Temple Mount, Ariel Sharon said, I'm going to lead a delegation of Jews onto the Temple Mount to pray. Now, you've got to understand who Ariel Sharon is to see how inflammatory this action was. You ought to read Ariel Sharon's biography. It's fascinating. Ariel Sharon is one of the most decorated generals in Israeli military history. He has one of the bloodiest histories in modern uh, Israeli, Israeli military things. He is one of the most feared. He has the most victories. He's one of the most controversial generals Israel has ever known. The Arabs think of Ariel Sharon and they're in terror. Ariel Sharon has conquered more Arab forces than maybe any other general in the history of the Israeli army. So this decorated general now a member of the legislative party, the Knesset in Israel, leads a procession of Jews onto the Temple Mount to pray. And that moment was the beginning of the Al-Aqsa Intifada. Al-Aqsa being the name of the mosque, Intifada being the holy war. That's when this latest conflict in Israel in the Middle East erupted was in September of 2000 when Ariel Sharon went up there. And the Muslims that were there said, no way, no way, Ariel Sharon, on our third holiest site, praying a Jew, a bloody Jewish general, never. And they begin to throw rocks and they started a riot. And now all these suicide bombers that we have, all this stuff, all these negotiations, all this conflict in Israel is spurred from that one day. It's not really the genesis of it, but it's the inflammation of it and what Islam is calling that holy war. And that brings us to the current situation. Israel, in an ever-increasing way, and in an increasing degree, is wanting to build a third temple in Jerusalem. The Bible says very explicitly that there would be a third temple. And popular opinion is beginning to grow, saying we ought to do so. In 1987, Time Magazine did an article, and they included there a poll where they said only 18% of Jews wanted to rebuild the temple. It's understandable why not many Jews wanted to. Number one, most Jews are secular today. You need to realize that. Most Jews today are secular, non-religious. They don't believe in God. They don't have anything to do with God. They're over it. So the temple's not too big of a deal to them. But number two, it's an extremely controversial and bloody thing. People in Israel, since the beginning of Israel, have lived in conflict, have lived in battle, have lived with bloodshed. And they're people just like you and I. When we go there this December, we'll see that there are people like you and I. And they want their kids to be able to play in parks safely. They want to be able to drive through their country safely. They want to know that their sons and daughters are going to come home. They want to be able to go to a cafe and have a meal and not worry. And so what threatens that is a desire for a third temple on the Temple Mount, which is Islamic-controlled, with the Dome of the Rock, that memorial, that shrine, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And so many people said, it's not worth it to us. It's not worth it to us. We just want to lead a peaceful life, trying to build a third temple, though the Bible says it will happen, will be very bloody. Well, in the ensuing years, a public opinion about it increased. In 2003, the Dahaf Institute reported excuse me, that 53% of Jews surveyed in Israel were now in favor of building it. 
Of course, a lot of that is in light of the current uprising, the intifada and the conflict over the now Jews are saying, wait a minute, we need to exert our sovereignty and we need to build a temple here on the Temple Mount. That same year, 2003, the Jerusalem Post did a survey and they found that 80% of Jews surveyed were in favor of building a third temple. You can understand why the religious would want to build a temple, right? Uh, Jewish religious life was totally centered around the temple. All the sacrifices and all the things that the priests did, it was all built around the temple service. In fact, Judaism had to be redefined and reorganized in 70 AD. After 70 AD, when Jerusalem was conquered and the temple was destroyed, the Jewish sages got together in Israel in a place called Yavna. And there in Yavna, they said, what are we going to do with Judaism? Judaism, as we know it, is now obsolete. The temple is destroyed. We, we, we can't do sacrifices anywhere but the temple. And now the priesthood is obsolete. And the, have you ever noticed how there's not Pharisees today or Sadducees? Why is that? Because they were allies with the priesthood. And when the priesthood was obsolete, it began to decrease. And so did the Pharisees and Sadducees. And who began to rise to prominence in Israel were the rabbis. And there came a redefining of Israel from being centered on the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood to now being centered on the rabbis, their teaching, and the synagogues. If you see a Jewish place of worship nowadays, it's a synagogue. And so there became a shift there. And what they reason they would do is replace sacrifices with prayer. And so today, if you go to the Western Wall, you will see Jews praying at the Western Wall and they're inserting in the cracks of the rocks there, those ancient rocks, prayers on paper. That's the closest they could get to the Holy of Holies where God's Shekinah glory was. And the closest they could get to worshiping God in a biblical way now is instead of sacrifice to those prayers. We have a picture of the Western Wall for you. There's the Western Wall. It's that tall wall just immediately in the middle. The Dome of the Rock uh, in the back. And you see, this is not a busy time, but you see some Jewish men there praying at the base of the wall. Understand that that was not a wall of the temple. That would have left Jesus' prophecy of the second temple being uh, utterly destroyed, unfulfilled. That is a retaining wall for the top of Mount Moriah. The temple was built on top of a mount. A mount is like this, correct? Hard to build a big temple on something like this. So the temple, uh, the top of the mountain had to be leveled and backfilled and they built retaining walls all around it. And there you have the top of the temple mount. And that is the retaining wall still remaining of the temple mount, which is closest to where the Holy of Holies was historically. And so that is a holiest spot in the world for Jews. When we go there in December, we'll go to that wall. You'll be able to walk right up and touch it and do whatever you want to do there within reason. So it's obvious why religious Jews want the temple rebuilt, but also secular Jews in Israel are now calling for the rebuilding of the temple. There's a group called Secular Jews for the Temple. And I have a quote here from their spokesman. Secular Jews from the Temple, their spokesman says this, the fact that the Arabs pray from there, the Temple Mount, to Mecca, but at the same time don't let us go up there makes the Temple Mount into a symbol of our exile and humiliation. Historically, too, the Mount was not only a place of sacrifices, but also a place and a symbol of our nationhood. The Arabs, too, feel that as long as they control the Temple Mount, they have a chance to banish us totally from the land. 
And so secular Jews are seeing the value of rebuilding a temple. It is the expressed goal of the PA, the Palestinian Authority, to remove the Jews from the land. You can get the PLO's manifesto written in 1964, revised in 1967, and you can look at Articles 9 through 15. It's like their Constitution and their Bill of Rights and all that into one, and you will see that they say explicitly, our goal is the armed liberation of Palestine to liquidate the Zionist presence in Israel. Let me translate for you into modern vernacular. To destroy every Jew in Israel until they're all gone. That is the expressed in their law, written, recorded, never been changed, though the UN has asked them to change it, never been amended in the PA authorities' uh, charter document there. So I share all this with you, and you say, um, why do I care? So what? Why do I care? Why is that interesting? Well, I think it's interesting that the Bible said there'd be two um, temples and they'd both be destroyed. When Bible prophecy is fulfilled, I think it's interesting. I think it's amazing to the the degree to which it was fulfilled. Not only that, but Jesus said in Luke 21, 24, as we read earlier, that Jerusalem would be in control of non-Jews or Gentiles until the last days. We are seeing Jerusalem as the center of world conflict, ownership of Jerusalem. It was Eastern Jerusalem and the division thereof that broke the deal in um, the talks between Barack, the former prime minister, and Bill Clinton and the late Yasser Arafat. Eastern Jerusalem is at the heart of the conflict. And according to Bible prophecy, there must be a temple standing in Jerusalem in the last days. It's very clear. So keep your eyes on the land. There's not a temple right now, but the Bible is very clear that there must be a temple in the last days when we enter in the tribulation period. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 Daniel 9.27, speaking of the Antichrist, says, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. A firm covenant meaning a peace treaty between Israel and the surrounding nations. It's a false peace treaty, as we read elsewhere in the Bible, for one week. That week being Shabuah in Hebrew, a week of years. So a seven-year period, Antichrist comes on the scene, he brokers a peace deal. No wonder he'll be a world leader. No wonder the whole world will gladly follow the Antichrist. Who else has been able to bring peace to the Middle East, to Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount? He will allow for the building of a temple on the Temple Mount and somehow still keep Islam happy and keep the peace. No wonder the whole world will follow him, though it's a false peace, as the Bible says. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years in the tribulation period, he will put a stop to sacrifice and to grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. The abomination of desolation spoken of by Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, verse 14, and Matthew 24, 15. Matthew 24, 15, Jesus quotes Daniel and says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. The abomination of desolation is when the Antichrist, this world leader coming on the scene, strolls onto the temple mount, into the temple, into the holy place and declares himself to be God. The Bible says explicitly that that is what will happen. And he will put an end to sacrifices and an end to grain offerings. If he goes to the temple and declares to be God, and he puts an end to sacrifices, it intuitively, logically means that there must be a temple standing in the last days. And yet we see biblically, and we'll see it develop really next week, that we are in the last days which means the conflict to build a temple will be ever-increasing. 2 Thessalonians gives it to us very explicitly in chapter 2. 
verses 3 and 4, let no one deceive you in any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. He's assuring the church in Thessalonica that the tribulation period has not come yet. They were concerned about that. They had had some false teaching. It says, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That's names for the Antichrist. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So the Antichrist, trying to put himself in the place of God, goes to the temple. Therefore, there must be a temple. How close are we to the time of the Antichrist? I refer you to the chart that I gave you last week. If you have that chart with you, as I asked you to bring it, pull it out. If not, it's up here for you, but it's hard to see with your eyes. That big arrow pointing vertically in the middle is the rapture of the church. I want you to notice that the prophecy that is fulfilled prior to that is Israel becoming a nation again in 1948. Between that prophecy being fulfilled and the rapture of the church, there are no other prophecies that must be fulfilled, meaning that the rapture of the church is imminent. Meaning, as I spoke of last week, it can happen at any time. It is the next event on God's prophetic timeline. If you don't know what the rapture is, it is God coming for the church to take them out of this world before the tribulation is released upon the world. The tribulation being expressly the wrath of God poured out on an unrepentant world. Why would he come to remove his church first? Because our wrath was already poured out upon Jesus Christ. The wrath for our sins has already been paid for. We have repented. So it would be redundant and nonsensical and inconsistent with the character of God for him to pour his wrath upon us when Jesus already took our wrath on the cross. It's for the non-repentant world, so the church is gone. So if Israel's already a nation... If they're already trying to rebuild the third temple and there must be a temple for the Antichrist, it simply means, people, how are you living? Because this is the last days and God's word is true. Every single word of it. And so you've got to begin to ask yourself, am I living according to God's word? Am I taking God's word serious or am I playing games with God? Because in case you haven't noticed from our study today, God doesn't play games. Am I playing with games with God or am I being very real? You can go to templeinstitute.org later. We will actually go to the Temple Institute when we're in Israel this December. They're in Jerusalem right on the side of the Temple Mount. And we'll see that they have already constructed all the articles necessary for the services in the temple, the third temple. They've already made them all. They've already made all the priestly garments. In fact, we have some pictures here for you. Um, First picture, that is the menorah that will be in the holy place. Now, a little secret. Uh, In the Bible, the command was given to build the menorah and it was to be made of pure gold. The Temple Institute only overlaid it with gold. They kind of fudged it there. But that is a menorah. It's huge. It's like this big. Uh, We'll see it when we go to Israel. We'll, We'll walk right up to it and look at it. They already have that built in anticipation of this third temple. Next picture. We see the altar of incense that will be in the Holy of Holies before the Ark of the Covenant. There, it's already built. It's made. It's ready. Next one. There we see the table of the showbread that will be in the holy place outside the veil. It's already there. It's ready to go. It's made. It's constructed. Next, there we see the crown that historically the high priest wore and will wear again. On it, it says, Kodesh Elohim, holy to God. This is in Hebrew across the front of it. It's already prepared for the high priest. They also have the high priestly garments already made. There is a group in New York City, 328 61st Street, New York City, 
who is now recruiting and training young men who are of the family of Levi, the Levitical priestly family, to serve in the third temple. 328 East 61st Street, New York City. They're searching world databases to find anyone who's in the Levi family and recruiting them for the priesthood. People, the Bible is real. It's coming. It's happening. Are you ready? Last thing I'll tell you about the third temple. The third temple will be desecrated by the Antichrist. We know that. It'll be built. It'll be standing in the tribulation period. He will go into it and declare himself to be God. The Messiah will either renew or rebuild this third temple. The Shekinah glory will not come into that third temple until the Messiah comes. The Bible is explicit for the Jewish people that it is the Messiah who would lead them in the rebuilding of the third temple. Um, Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, name for the Messiah, according to Zechariah 3, 8, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Jesus is the only one who can fulfill both the office of king and priest. He will be the king on the throne of David, and he is the high priest to the nation of Israel and the world. He is the one who will rebuild Israel, regenerated Israel, in the third, or lead them in the rebuilding of the third temple. Israel expects this today. You ask any observant Jew, when do you expect the Messiah to come? We expect him to come very soon. When Messiah comes, what will he do? Well, he will liberate Israel entirely from political oppressors and he will lead us in the rebuilding of the temple. Ask any observant Jew. He will tell you this is what they expect Messiah to do. I told you earlier that the Sanhedrin was reestablished in Israel this year. The Sanhedrin is that ancient governing body of Jewish elders or sages. It has been out of existence for 1,600 years. This year it was revived in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. We read in the Talmud, a collection of Jewish writings, that in the last days, according to Jewish writings, there would be a partial regathering of Jews to the land and that the Sanhedrin would be reestablished before Messiah came. It says in the Talmud that um, Elijah, the prophet, who is to be the forerunner of the Messiah, would present himself before this revived Sanhedrin to announce the coming of the Messiah. Now, Jesus told us that Elijah already came in the person of John the Baptist. And we know that Messiah has already come. But Messiah is coming a second time. They missed the first coming. They will not miss the second coming. The Bible says, Jesus said, it will be as lightning flashing from the east to the west. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Israel will see Jesus Christ. They will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn realizing that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah of Israel. The savior of the world. It's amazing what's going on over there. And so they expect Jesus to lead them in the rebuilding or Messiah to lead them in the rebuilding of the third temple. We know that he will at his second coming. At his second coming, according to Zechariah chapter 14, he puts his feet down on the Mount of Olives. When he does that, the Mount of Olives is split in two, creating a valley or a rift that runs from east to west. 
We're told that in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 3. Very interesting. In 1927, they discovered a fault line under the Mount of Olives running from east to west. Very interesting. Not that the Lord needs that fault line to split the mountain, but it's like he's throwing you a little bone saying, look, the Bible is true. So the Bible tells us that Jesus will come at the end of the tribulation period. He'll set his feet down on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives faces the Temple Mount from the east. The third temple will have been built there. We call it the tribulation or the Antichrist temple because God will not fill it with his glory. But when Messiah comes, that mountain will be split this way. It'll split the Kidron Valley. That rift will go underneath the Temple Mount, according to um, Ezekiel chapter 47. And then living waters will flow from underneath the Temple Mount down through the middle of Israel. They will revive the desert everywhere that they goes. That it goes. There will be fruit trees that yield their fruit several times a year. These living waters flowing from the Temple will go into the Dead Sea in which nothing lives, hence Dead Sea, and it will revive it. And in the Millennial Kingdom, it will become a prominent fishing port. At that time, the Antichrist, the third temple, the tribulation temple, will be shaken to the very core. Jesus will enter Jerusalem, and in a 75-day period, according to Daniel chapter 12, will lead Israel in the rebuilding of the temple. And according to Ezekiel 43, verses 1 and 2 and 4 and 5, he will fill the temple with his glory. And once again, God will be among his people. He will have kept his word to the Jews, and he will rule and reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Bible's pretty cool, huh? So I just have these questions. The Bible. It simply means that God is in control, and that ought to be comforting to you. Simply means that God keeps every promise, and that ought to be assuring to you. It means that God is good, and he can be trusted. Therefore, your life must be adjusted. You must align your life with the word of God. If you don't know Jesus is your Lord and Savior today, he is the only Savior of the world. You must repent today and ask him to forgive you and save you from your sins, and he will give you the promise of heaven. If you're a Christian today and you're playing games with God, God does not play games. Repent today. Get right with the Lord. We're living in the last days. Amen.